Hey, this is Dylan from Studio D Podcast Production. Sarah and Beth will be back in your feed on Wednesday, but in observance of the Labor Day holiday, we wanted to share one of our favorite episodes, Five Things You Need to Know About Labor Unions. Enjoy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsu Politics. Today, we're going to dive right into five things you need to know about modern labor unions. And there is so much history to cover here. So much. So let's start with number one. The American labor movement sprang to life with industrialization and resulted in many of the workplace protections we enjoy today. For almost the first 100 years of the country's history, you see very little union activity because the organization of labor was more closely akin to European art guilds. 
because most Americans still fed themselves directly through their own labor on farms, not by selling their labor in cities. So labor in cities was still highly skilled. It was performed by artisans who would form these small organizations. Now, English common law at the time outlawed striking to raise wages. So when these small guilds would organize maybe to protest wage reductions, the U.S. courts leaned heavily on English common law. In 1806, there was the criminal prosecution of the Philadelphia cordwainers, which is basically shoemakers, in the Commonwealth versus Pulis, a three-day trial that led the jury to convict the accused unionists of a criminal conspiracy to fix prices. Then, in 1842, the Massachusetts Supreme Court, in an influential decision, Commonwealth versus Hunt, ruled the Bootmakers Union a lawful association with a lawful right to organize and collectively withhold labor, a.k.a. strike. This court decision came as we started to see increasing industrialization. But first came the Civil War, and you can't tell the history of the labor movement or really any other period of history without including the anti-racist and often labor-specific uprisings of Black Americans. W.E.B. Du Bois described the revolt of enslaved people during the Civil War as the first general strike and a major turning point in the war because the North was experiencing riots over conscription and the South needed the labor. To see how enslaved people were able to coordinate a general strike, Errol A. Henderson looks at conditions in the Southern economy in the years before the war. He notes that many enslaved workers were not isolated on plantations, but employed in growing industrial operations. Some, particularly skilled artisans, were hired out, working in a manner similar to wage workers, but without pay. Henderson writes that this practice radicalized workers by making it obvious how much value they were creating without compensation. It also gave enslaved artisans a chance to meet and discuss their grievances together. These artisans, along with preachers and other enslaved workers who traveled as part of their jobs, formed a connection for mobilization. So after the Civil War, with the increasing rise of industrialization, you see the dramatic shift to cities where Americans are selling their labor. And you see the rise of factory labor, which was unskilled in the sense that you didn't need to complete years of apprenticeships to do the job and were therefore more easily replaced. You also see a shift away from these trade unions, these artisan guilds, to more industrialized unions. The Knights of Labor form in 1869 and attract a huge number of workers. They held strikes and organized across industries. They were really about the tenets of democracy and republicanism, public education, elimination of debtor prisons, banking reform. So there were two strands you start to see, the trade unions that were about the immediate worker needs and these more industrialized movements that were about a bigger societal vision. And these strands were really kept separate operationally. The industrialized movement was making progress, particularly with regards to an eight-hour workday, but this was often a result of very violent disruptive actions and strikes. Between 1877 and 1900, American presidents sent the U.S. Army into 11 strikes. Governors mobilized the National Guard in somewhere between 118 and 160 labor disputes, and mayors called out the police on numerous occasions to maintain public order. Then on May 4th, 1886, you have a huge event. 
A labor protest rally near Chicago's Haymarket Square turned into a riot after someone threw a bomb at police. At least eight people died as a result of the violence that day. And despite lack of evidence against them, eight radical labor activists were convicted in connection with the bombing. There was a dramatic reaction after Haymarket. The Knights rapidly began to fail, and trade unions took on a more modern, businesslike approach. In December 1886, the National Craft Unions joined together to form the American Federation of Labor, and that's the AFL that you've probably heard of, under the leadership of Samuel Gompers. The AFL's basic premise is that self-organization along occupational lines with a concentration on job-conscious goals would give workers the necessary tools for greater freedom. As a formal policy, the AFL decided that it represented all workers of every skill, demographic, and background. But national unions really only consisted of skilled workers. The AFL also believed limiting new labor was the best way to control the labor market and keep wages high. So they depended on anti-immigrant, racist, and sexist means to do that. The AFL chartered a whites-only international association of machinists. In 1902, only about 3% of union members were Black. Asian workers were wholly excluded. Western and Eastern European immigrants were welcome in theory, but they were excluded in practice. And this is why John L. Lewis and the United Mine Workers broke away from the AFL in 1935 to form the Committee for Industrial Organization, which is the CIO. They embraced workers across race and gendered lines. But before that, we see World War I, and there is a real dramatic growth in union membership and power during that time because the government really stepped in. The flow of labor from Europe had stopped, and the war effort was dependent on American workers in ways that it hadn't been in the past. It's during this time that you see the passage of the Clayton Antitrust Act of 1914. Previously, under the Sherman Antitrust Act, workers who were classified as cartels if they tried to organize. And this new law allowed employees to strike and boycott. The National War Labor Board was formed in 1918 to mediate corporate and union conflicts. However, these gains are largely stalled or erased during the Gilded Age, as you also see the growth in corporation and big corporations gaining a lot of political power. Of course, that dramatic growth of wealth led to the Great Depression, as well as a series of violent strikes that broke out in April and May of 1934 in San Francisco, Toledo, and Minneapolis. Then, in late 1936 and early 1937, you have another huge event in the labor movement, which is the great sit-in at the General Motors plant in Flint, Michigan. It lasted 44 days and saw workers using hinges and bolts to fend off armed police who were trying to seize the factory. There's also a great story about the, the wives of the strikers would break the windows to allow the tear gas to escape as the police were trying to force the people sitting in out of the factory. The governor of Michigan refused used to call in troops to break up the strike, and it forced General Motors, then the world's largest corporation, to recognize the union. Following this success, there was a great deal of New Deal reforms, from laws limiting child labor laws to laws setting a minimum wage. I learned a really fascinating thing I have to insert here, Beth. Did you know that the child labor laws is how we got birth certificates? Oh, interesting. Yeah, right? They didn't know how old they were. <laughs> They'd be like, no, well, you can't work somebody under 14. Well, how old are you? I don't know, 13-ish. And so that's how we got the birth certificate, which I thought was really interesting. But the most 
important in foundational labor law was the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, which guarantees the right of private sector employees to organize into trade unions, to engage in collective bargaining, and take collective action such as strikes. It also establishes the National Labor Relations Board as an independent agency of the federal government of the United States with responsibilities for enforcing U.S. labor law in relation to collective bargaining and unfair labor practices. A century of demand was also finally met after that de- the demands for the eight-hour work week stalled after the Haymarket riot when Congress amended the Fair Labor Standard Act to limit the federal work week to 40 hours. So that was all just thing number one, just to give you <laughs> a little bit of a picture of how the concept of striking was illegal under English common law. And we got from there to this really intricate dance between government regulation and the way that unions operate. The second thing we want you to know is that union membership peaked in the mid-20th century, but unions continued to struggle with racist and sexist policies as well as corruption within the leadership and anti-union government policies. Union power waned a little bit during World War II because the government wouldn't allow some unions to strike if it harmed wartime production. You also have the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act amending the 1935 National Labor Relations Act, which prohibited unions from engaging in several unfair labor practices, including jurisdictional strikes, wildcat strikes, solidarity or political strikes, secondary boycotts, secondary and mass picketing, closed shops, and monetary donations by unions to federal political campaigns. The NLRA also allowed states to pass right-to-work laws banning union shops. But after the war, unions and labor movements were still very strong. Unions became a controlling economic powerhouse during the late 40s and 50s. The AFL-CIO formed in 1955, combining organized labor and increasing the power of collective bargaining. So remember, you had the AFL and the CIO kind of separately pursuing those strands of like broader social policymaking and day-to-day job concerns. And now you have all of that coming together under one big umbrella. Unions more than tripled weekly earnings in manufacturing between 1945 and 1970. Union workers received enhanced benefits and protections against old age, illness, and unemployment. They received protections to ensure that they were treated fairly at work, but still only about one-third of American employees were part of organized labor. Although the 1960s brought women and racial minorities flooding into unions, the leadership structure in unions and the skilled jobs remained mostly foreclosed to everyone but white men, which is really interesting because if you look back at the movement, some of the most important work was done by Black Americans and by Frances Perkins, who was the first cabinet-level woman appointed in the United States as a Secretary of Labor. So when Sarah talked about those child labor laws and a lot of the safety issues, those all came from Frances Perkins. But still... The AFL-CIO struggled with racial and gender issues and, at the same time, played a really important role in advancing civil rights legislation. It's complicated. So union membership reached its historical peak in 1954 with 35% of the nation's labor force unionized. The nation's unions had almost 15 million members. 
In the 1970s, huge changes in culture, technology, and global competition weakened unions economically and politically. Many industries were deregulated and restructured. Foreign goods started pouring into the U.S. Non-union competition for jobs increased, and the National Labor Relations Act started to hamstring unions. The Reagan administration in particular was anti-union, with the most famous incident involving PATCO, the Air Traffic Controllers Union, which had supported Reagan for the presidency after years of relative failure under Democratic presidents. The air traffic controllers threatened to violate federal law by going on strike. And although Reagan initially tried to arrange a very generous settlement with the union, its adamant and frustrated leaders demanded even more. The president then felt he had no other recourse but to fire them. And the legend of his determination to set an example by breaking the unions began to develop. Membership fell by 5 million between 1975 and 1985. Unions' successes in lobbying for legislation, things like outlawing child labor, mandating equal pay for equal work, made unions less relevant because federal law protected workers. And unions had become so strong in the 40s and 60s that many union leaders descended into corruption and complacency. We also saw the rise of anti-union legislation at the state and local levels with concentrated efforts to pass the right-to-work legislation, a government ban on contractual agreements between employers and union employees requiring workers to pay for the cost of union representation. Currently, 26 states have right-to-work legislation, although interestingly, Missouri had right-to-work legislation, but in 2018, it was rejected by the voters by a two-thirds majority. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive & Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive & Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive & June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive & June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. So thing number three we want you to know is that as private union membership began to decrease for all the reasons Sarah just described, public service unions began to grow. In 1962, President Kennedy signed an executive order that gave public employees the right to organize. It emphasized that federal employees need not join a union. It ruled out strikes. It included few of the procedures the AFL-CIO requested and was soon made even more restrictive through interpretations by the Civil Service Commission. These unions continued to grow throughout the end of the 20th century and until today, despite Supreme Court rulings aimed at decreasing their power, such as the Janus opinion, which you can hear a deep dive of on the Nightly Nuance on Patreon, where the court ruled that states can no longer require public employees who are represented by a union but have chosen not to formally become members to contribute to the cost of collective bargaining. Today, the nation's largest unions are public service unions, including the National Education Association, which is the largest, the American Federation of Teachers, and the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. The public sector is about 30% unionized, and they fight for the entire public sector, not just employees. Often the demands go far beyond worker needs, like raises and health insurance, and speak to societal issues like poverty, immigration, and the push for charter schools. The uprising in Puerto Rico is largely credited to have began with organized action from teachers. In 2018, we saw more Americans striking than in any year since 1986, and these were led by public sector employees often semi-wildcat strikes, meaning they didn't originate with leadership but with membership, including teacher strikes in West Virginia, Oklahoma, and our home state of Kentucky. You also saw strikes in the Los Angeles Unified School Districts. So this is not just happening in red states. So number four, we are also seeing the rise of organized action beyond the public sector as well. From Kentucky coal miners blocking a shipment of coal over bad checks, issued to them for back pay to Somali workers at an Amazon warehouse in Minnesota, striking for religious breaks, the successful strike by 7,700 hotel workers against Marriott with the slogan, one job should be enough, there has been a growing movement of collective action. Much of this collective action has been taking place in New York, including the fight for 15, which began in 2012, when 200 fast food workers walked off the job to demand $15 an hour and union rights in New York City. 
And as of May 28, 2019, the movement has seen successes on state and local levels. California, Massachusetts, New York, Maryland, New Jersey, Illinois, and Connecticut have passed laws that gradually raise their state minimum wages to at least $15 per hour. There's also been reporting just last week that yoga teachers in New York City have begun unionizing. Even in traditional private sector unions, we are seeing more action. This week, the UAW went on strike for the first time in 12 years, and 80,000 Kaiser Permanente workers said their members will participate in a week-long strike starting October 14th to protest the company's labor practices. Still, today, about one-tenth of the workforce is union, compared to about a third in the 50s. And there are interesting conversations happening about whether collective action is going to be more powerful inside or outside of unions. Some complaints from teachers, for example, about how rushed the process has been from unions to review proposed contracts, like in Los Angeles. You have clashes between Uber and Lyft drivers and the SEIU about driver input in the bill negotiation process. And unions holding back support of collective action until workers decide to become members. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze. And its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. 
Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. The last thing we want to tell you today is that there is a rise of collective action inside the tech industry about both worker issues and societal issues. In the past several years, we've seen walkouts at Google because of sexual harassment policies and at Microsoft to protest involvement in the military industrial complex. Game Workers United is a group that fills voids where there aren't traditional unions. A group of workers at video game maker Riot Games staged a three-hour walkout in May over the handling of sex discrimination accusations. And we see, in addition to this kind of informal ad hoc collective action, a growing trend toward unionization in the tech sector. Kickstarter staff is unionizing because they want to, quote, promote our collective values, inclusion and solidarity, transparency and accountability, a seat at the table, the organizers wrote, noting that in the decades that Kickstarter has been around, it's democratized crowdfunding and brought more than 150,000 projects to life. They say Kickstarter's efforts are incomplete and these values have failed to manifest in our workplace. We can do better together for ourselves and our industry. Kickstarter staffers say they chose the OPEIU, which is the Office and Professional Employees International Union, because of its approach to organizing, its experience domestically and internationally, and its diversity of members. There has been a wave of unionization at online publications, getting its start at Gawker in 2015. BuzzFeed agreed to voluntarily recognize an employee union, although I heard one interview talking about how voluntary is like a strange word to use about companies that go along with unions because so many of these tech companies are so public that the bad press associated with fighting a union makes it a a coerced decision, even if it's, quote, voluntary. But BuzzFeed's agreement ended a standoff that included a walkout and months of negotiations. As one employee put it, they need to demonstrate that being socially conscious isn't just a brand. Outlets that have followed Gawker's lead include original online magazines Slate and Salon, destination sites like Vice Media, HuffPost, Refinery29, The Dodo, and Vox, the humor site The Onion, the podcasting company Gimlet Media, the music site Pitchfork, and New York Magazine's online verticals The Cut, Vulture, and Intelligencer. The ranks have swelled recently at two unions representing writers and editors, the News Guild, which represents the staff at the New York Times, among other media organizations, and the Writers Guild of America First, perhaps best known for its work with television and film writers. Organizers at the two unions estimated that the digital wave has brought them 2,000 new members, and that has effects outside of the digital space as well. The L.A. Times newsroom has unionized, which is something that people thought would never, ever happen. Not all of these efforts end in unionization. 
DNA Info and Gothamist shuttered after their staff decided to unionize. And so there are multiple outcomes when workers take collective action. And we're going to get into the pros and cons of that, the way the law impacts unions, and where we see trends in labor going on Tuesday's episode. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm so excited. We hope that you have learned a lot about unions during this episode. We'll be on social media with any questions or to hear what you learned over the weekend. And we'll be back on Tuesday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Emily Neasley. Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Valelli, Catherine Vollmer, Amy Whited, Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Ashley Thompson, Michelle Wood, Joshua Allen, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.